Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're celebrating Pride Month with two of our favorite authors. First, I'll talk with Leah Johnson, whose latest YA novel is called Rise to the Sun. Her stunning debut, You Should See Me in a Crown, made bestseller lists everywhere. Then, acclaimed writer and cartoonist Molly Knox Ostertag will tell us about her new graphic novel, the Girl from the Sea. First, here's Leah Johnson. Hi, Leah. Welcome back to the program. Hi. Thank you so much for having me back. This is such a joy. When you were here in 2020, you were a debut novelist on the brink of bestsellerdom. How does it feel to be a superstar? <laughs> well, when you put it like that, I feel like not somebody who is in their childhood bedroom <laughs> at their parents' house. I feel like a, a real star. So uh, that means a lot to me. <laughs> so now tell us about Rise to the Sun, your brand new YA novel. Rise to the Sun is a book about two girls named Tony and Olivia who are coming off the heels of two very difficult years. Tony is grieving the loss of her father and unsure about where she's going to go next. And Olivia has just had a terrible, messy breakup that has made her an outcast, not only at school, but also within her family. And they're both going to a music festival for one last epic weekend before they have to embark on the next chapter in their lives. And when they get there, they realize that in order to accomplish all the things that they want to accomplish over the course of the weekend, they're going to need to rely on each other and ultimately the music more than they ever thought possible. What inspired the setting? It, it works beautifully with the story. I love live music. And I know that's the case for most people. I know there's like so many people who are like, yeah, like I go to concerts all the time. I go to music festivals all the time. But I have to say that for me, it's a space that encompasses so much about how I understand myself and have learned to understand my place in the world. And it's been such a site of communal joy and freedom in a lot of ways for me that it felt like in a year like 2020, where I was really going through it, like trying to figure out like, what do I want to do next? What kind of person do I want to be? What is a life going to look like in a post-pandemic world? It felt really organic to me to return to a place that has provided me so many answers to sort of explore this story for these two girls. The emotions pack a punch. I've got to say everything from friendship, the fights to this passionate romance. It's just, just spectacular. How did you decide or what led you to tell the story through the eyes of both of the heroines, Olivia and Tony, alternating their voices and their perspectives? Well, let me tell you this. If I knew how difficult it was to write dual POV, I probably wouldn't have done it. I think <laughs> I really, I got, I got a little lucky with the fact that um, I was so naive. I thought it was just going to be like, ah, no big deal. Like it's going to feel the same way that writing any book feels. 
And so it was a big challenge, actually, differentiating between their voices and also like recalibrating myself with every chapter to think like, okay, this is the experience that they're both having, but they're metabolizing all these things quite differently because of, of how they're coming at it. And so it was a real challenge for me as a writer, but also as uh, someone who just loves stories and specifically stories about queer young black girls. It was it was a challenge of how many ways can we draw people more fully into these experiences? How many different windows into what this black girlhood can be can we offer in one story? And so it felt like the necessary step was to give them both equal space on the page to sort of explore all these different ideas. And that was that was a lot of, I mean, it was, it was a challenge, obviously it was very difficult, but it was also a lot of fun to be able to, it felt like writing two books in one. <laughs> it's really great. And as a reader, I loved it because you didn't have to second guess what is actually going on in the other person's mind. You could get it right away. And it, it really just added to the fullness of their love and, and how they're drawn to each other. I was Thank so you. struck too. I, I feel like you're you're a pioneer here. There's no self-consciousness about their sexuality, but about who they are. And that was so refreshing. Just they can be. Yeah. 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 Thank you for saying that. That, that means a lot to me. You know, somebody I really admire, David Levithan once described it as being a part of a continuum of queer writers, you know, like all of my stories are building on the stories that came before it, not just the stories that I've written that came before it, but the stories that like all of these godfathers and, and godfems of, of queer YA have, uh, you know, all the doors they've opened in all these ways. And I think for me, what I wanted to see happen in the canon of queer kid lit was stories that aren't necessarily coming out stories. And I think there's still such a place for that. But stories that aren't necessarily coming out stories, but stories in which like they already know, like, yeah, I'm queer. I'm here. I'm like, this is it. And figuring out like what comes after that? Like, what is the next step? So like, yeah, I've come out. Yeah, I'm I'm here. I know who I am. What does it mean to live in that? What does it mean to sit in that for, you know, 72,000 words? And so I, I just really wanted to, to as, as part of my contribution to the continuum of queer writers, push us even further into the narrative of what it means to be out and proud and queer, but sometimes not proud, like sometimes still like a little afraid and scared, you know, like what does that look like on the other side? Now, I know that you identify with the character of Tony, who is more cerebral and quiet. Tell us exactly why that is. She is so deeply afraid of really showing who she is to people because she's afraid of being hurt. She is so withdrawn in a lot of ways and like retreats into music because that is a thing that she understands and is easier to process than like actually emoting. And like those things to me, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Me and my therapist are working on that. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting because the emotions you describe, you make it seem like, oh, this is so easy falling in love, but <laughs> it's not that easy. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. <laughs> Being in love is mortifying. <laughs> it's just like people, I think, <laughs> I think people underestimate how, terrifying it is to be in love because it's 
the scariest thing in the world to me is allowing yourself to be seen totally for who you are by another person. Because when I can't hide the bits and pieces of myself that I am most afraid of or ashamed of, and you also see them and you tell me that you don't love them, then like it just doubles down on all these things that I'm already reckoning with. Right. But like to invite somebody into those dark places and have them illuminate light on them in some way, it's like scary, but it's also like the most incredible feeling in the world. And so it's like being in love is just absolutely mortifying, but also like the most like exciting, mortifying endeavor you can pursue. That's going to be the topic of our next podcast, Leah. Could you read an excerpt from Rise to the Sun? Maybe when Olivia and Tony are at the dance party and realizing that the thing between them is real. Okay. This scene is from Tony's perspective. And here we go. The barn looks surprisingly club-like, despite the dirt floor and the lofted beams that still hold hay bales as if an animal could trot in here at any time looking to graze. There are about a hundred people inside, dancing to whatever it is the DJ is currently playing. They're moving together, some with more rhythm than others, but everyone seems wholly unconcerned with what anyone else thinks. I don't want to move, but that seems out of the question as Olivia grabs my wrist and pulls me to the center of the dance floor. There's a disco ball above us that casts prisms of light across her face as she turns it to the ceiling. We're close, but not close enough to touch. The back of my brain is screaming retreat, but I can't bring myself to listen to it. When Olivia opens her eyes and sees me staring, I don't look away even though I want to. I want to be honest, like she said, and my most honest self just wants to watch her get lost in this right now, whether I know how to dance or not. But she doesn't let me get away with it that easy. She reaches for me, softly wrapping her fingers around my wrists and tugging me closer. It's so close and slow and gentle that it's completely at odds with the way people are moving around us. The mass of bodies pulsing and crashing together like atoms. But in the center of all the chaos, it's just me and Olivia, my hands barely grazing her hips as she sways. She smiles and my heart feels like it's in my throat. I'm not sure what to do, how to catalog this sensation. Only one person has ever let me down because I've refused to care enough about any of the people who have come into my life to give them that much power. I've backed myself into a corner, watched the people around me group up and pair off. And until I met Olivia, I hadn't realized just how lonely that had been. Sure, I'd had fleeting thoughts of what a relationship might be like before, but those thoughts had never been enough for me to want to pursue one, for me to take the chance at what it would feel like when that relationship failed. I'm a runner. My dad was a runner. He never learned how to stand in a feeling for long enough to pick it apart. But all dad's running ever did was carry him further and further away from the people who loved him the most. All it gave him was a restless heart and a daughter who only knew him through stolen moments between tours, anecdotes of life on the road, and guitar riffs. Maybe that was enough for him. And maybe for a long time, I could convince myself that it was enough for me, but not anymore. Not right now. Here, in this moment, I'm anchored. I'm facing this girl and the bigness of this head on. Trust me, she mouths. My palms are sweating. I've only ever trusted three people in my life, never gotten close enough to trust any more than that. I hold on to her waist a little tighter and I answer with my body. I do. That's lovely, Leah. You're now officially the Black queer girl rom-com queen. 
Congratulations. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you so much. This is like, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, um, I was doing this panel for the Pride Book Fest, which is just a bunch of queer kidly authors coming together and talking about writing. And, you know, somebody asked the question, how do you figure out what types of stories you're going to tell? And to that, my answers are twofold. One, tell the stories that are most interesting and exciting to you. But two, find the stories that you can tell that nobody else can tell exactly like you. What do you do that nobody else can quite do the same way you do it? That's not to say there aren't a bunch of other, you know, Black queer women who are writing books and doing it incredibly well. It's just to say that like this specific type of book, this specific brand of character, that's like, this is where I want to live in, in my YA. And so, yeah, it's, it feels, I'm like really honored that you would say something like that. And it's such a beautiful falling in love moment, but the, Tony is grieving the loss of her father, which is so, so raw. Tell us how that relationship too affects her so deeply and haunts her. So Tony's beginning this book in the wake of her father's passing. He died suddenly and tragically eight months before the beginning of the book. And so she's sort of floundering trying to figure out what comes next because in the aftermath of her father's death, she's realized that like, we don't have a lot of time and I don't want to waste my time doing something that I'm not passionate about, which is for her going to college. And she doesn't know what the alternative is because the only other thing she's ever loved enough to want to spend her life doing is being involved in music in some way. But her fear is that she'll end up like her dad in that like her dad was always leaving. He was always on tour. He didn't stick around very long. He had a hard time being present for her. And that vulnerability that comes with knowing that the person that you love most in the world not only is like passed away, but two, always had a hard time being there for you because of this thing that took up so much of his life and his heart. I think that has left Tony feeling really unsure about whether or not she's capable of being somebody who can love without fearing for being hurt or being left. And also she's afraid that she can't really be a musician because she's so much like her father and that maybe she'll lose herself in it and it'll cause her to alienate the people that she cares about. And that is, that's Tony's journey over the course of the book is figuring out like, I don't have to be the sum total of my parents' mistakes. Like I can be a different person entirely and figure out how to make these things work. You bring the reader right smack into her emotions so we can see how she's navigating her doubts and her fears. Earlier, I mentioned your hit debut novel, You Should See Me in a Crown. I'm eager to know what you've heard from your young fans about the book. You know, I'm really, really lucky that I get to do a lot of school visits. And so I have done a number of visits where queer girls in particular have come out to me during the event or like after the event and been like, nobody else in my family knows that I'm queer. But I just wanted to say thank you because I didn't know it was possible or 
like I use they, them pronouns, but I didn't want to come out to my family because I'm, I'm afraid of how they might react. But reading You Should See Me in a Crown made me think that maybe it would, it would be possible. And so it's just, I don't know. Those are the moments that like they really, I'm a big sap. And so like I instantly like burst into tears and just like fall apart. But it's, those are the moments that I hold on to when I go back to the page and like, it really keeps me going. That's everything, Leah. So what is your message to the Black queer girls out there who are listening, those who want to fall in love and and make their voices heard too? I think I just returned to the dedication for this book. And that's like for every Black queer girl who's been told that they're too much, for the ones who believe that they're not enough, know that you deserve every happy ending. You deserve all the good things, not in spite of who you are, but because of who you are. Perfect. Thank you so very much for talking with me today, Leah. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Now, here is Molly Knox Ostertag. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled that you're here. Tell us about your new graphic novel. So The Girl from the Sea, it is my first young adult graphic novel, and it is a supernatural teen summer romance. It follows 15-year-old Morgan Kwan, who is feeling really trapped in her life. She lives on this tiny island in coastal Nova Scotia. Her parents just got divorced, so her house is really tense right now. It's just her mom and her little brother. She feels really claustrophobic in her friend group. She knows that she's different than them. And one of the reasons that she's different is that she knows she's gay, but she's really afraid to come out. She just doesn't want to be known as like the one gay kid in this tiny coastal town that she lives in. So she has a plan. Very A-type personality, much like myself. She is going to kind of keep everything locked down and just make it through the next two years of high school. And then when she goes to college, she's going to get to be out, finally get to be herself and get to start living her life. Of course, plans never go the way they are intended, especially not in young adult books. And so... uh, Morgan quickly meets a selkie girl named Kelty. Kelty can turn from a seal who lives in the ocean, but she can take her seal skin off and turn into a very cute girl. She and Morgan meet. They kiss almost immediately because Morgan is pretty sure this is a dream. And the next day when it turns out not to be a dream and Kelty is on land and determined to have a whirlwind summer romance with Morgan, all of her plans are going to come crumbling down. So it's a book about secrets and... First love, both of the girls have all of these sort of things that they're keeping from each other and themselves and from the world. And it's about all of that kind of coming to a head in the context of this sort of secret summer romance. That was such a lovely twist that they kiss at the beginning rather than at the Uh end. Yeah, that was definitely um, something I really wanted to do with a, a queer story. I love I love getting together stories. You know, I love like the tension of the crush and that is so delicious to read. But I also find a lot of interest in like being in a relationship and the dynamics there. And so that was, I, I knew that I really wanted to not just be like, here is a same-sex crush, but to be like, here is a same-sex relationship playing out and we get to see the, the fun and the drama of it and also, and sort of the different dynamics going on. The reader feels the tension and the passion and the girl's attraction for each other. For those of us who had never heard the term, could you tell us what a selkie is? It is a Scottish and mostly like Northeastern European legend where uh, the classic selkie story is 
that they're sort of like guardians of the seals and they occasionally will come onto land and take their seal skin off to sunbathe. And they're, they're usually beautiful women. There's a couple variations where they're men, but it's usually women. Usually a human fisherman will see them and sort of steal their skin. Um, and that means that the Selkie is kind of bound to him and she has to become his wife, have his children. And she's very dutiful about all of this. But the moment she discovers where he's hidden her seal skin, she takes it and goes back into the ocean. It's about like being pulled between two places. And it's about this kind of women losing their agency, but then having this like wildness at their heart. So I've loved, I've always loved Selkie legends. There's not a ton of stories about them, um, like contemporary stories. And so I wanted to kind of give it this modern, modern retelling and give it sort of a queer retelling. Yeah. And I think I also just love seals. Like I just, I've seen like, we, I've spent a lot of time in Nova Scotia, kayaks with seals and they look like people. Like you really can imagine and understand where these legends come from. They have such intelligent eyes and they will watch you and swim around you. And it just seems like, like at any moment they could start talking to you. So that is where it came from. Fascinating. Now tell us about the character of Morgan. She doesn't think that she can embrace her queer identity and still be accepted by her friends and family. But how does she face those very real fears? So I like, I had this idea for the book a while ago and it took quite a lot of kind of writing and rewriting and a lot of sort of drawing and brainstorming through the drawings to figure out the characters. And what I really came to that made Morgan click for me was realizing that she wants to be in control. And I think that's really relatable when you're a teenager, you have control over so little of your life. And, but you're starting to sort of realize that you want control over your life and fantasizing about what that would look like. And so that's Morgan. She wants to control when she comes out and she wants to control who knows things about her. She's trying really hard to keep everything, her sort of broken family and her friend group and her private feelings. She's trying to keep them all in separate boxes. And that's, it's interesting because I think I, I wanted to tell a story about coming out and being closeted, but I really didn't want homophobia and sort of bigotry to be any part of the story. I was really lucky to grow up in a community that was really progressive and really accepting, but it was still hard for me to come out. And the, it was for these very personal internal reasons that it's, it's hard to declare yourself as different. It's hard to say that you're different from your, your friends, especially your female friends. It's hard to kind of have your family like, and have everyone who you, thinks they know you so well, like learn new things about you. It's really scary. And so uh, for a long time, I also sort of compartmentalized it. And kind of also like in my own life, kind of through falling in love with someone really like could not keep it inside anymore. And so that's, that's the story I wanted to tell. Oh gosh, that's, that's lovely. (laughs) I mean, what a, what a great way to come out, right? Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of queer stories are about the individualism of it, which is like a completely valid and very real part of it. But I think it just is that you also, there are other queer people out there and sometimes Sometimes you will keep yourself, keep things about yourself secret and think that they're not important to acknowledge. But then when those things become tied to a real actual person that you care about, that's when you really have to bring them into the light. And so I wanted to, yeah, I, I just wanted to explore that. Could you talk about your creative process and how the images add that depth and emotion to the girl's romance? I love graphic novels. They're, it's truly just like the medium of my heart Um, because I do, I think there's a certain amount of subtlety. I think I would have trouble. I would struggle writing this romance in prose just because so much of it is internal. And so much of romance is about little moments that can almost seem cheesy, but when you're in them, they're not cheesy. They're the most amazing thing in the world. So for a comic, 
I really get to draw it and kind of like pull the reader along and be like, the reader can see the look in each other's eyes. The reader can sort of, there's all of these sort of close shots of each other's faces as they're looking each other at each other, kind of putting you in the perspective specifically of Morgan. Like it's very, she, it's very much her POV. And so trying to kind of create that emotional reaction just with images and not using words as much is was like a really fun challenge and something I, I felt that graphic novels just, it worked really well for. So yeah, my, my creative process is I do try to write the whole story before I start actually drawing pages of the comic. So I try to kind of make sure I have the plot and have it all figured out and I've tied up and, you know, closed all the plot holes and everything. But there is a lot of drawing that goes in in the beginning of just figuring out who the girls are. There's one concept art. I think it's at the back of the book in the extra section that where I just sort of figured out Morgan, I could draw her very stiff. She's sort of skinny. She is, she stands like very stiffly. She always like has her limbs like very straight because she's just like nervous all the time. And then Kelsey, she's like more curvy. She has all these wild freckles. She has giant shiny eyes and crazy hair. Like it's, it's this visual contrast that also speaks to the girl's character and kind of figuring out that visual contrast. Let me take it the next step to, to writing their characters. I loved how real all of the girls looked, all of, you know, Morgan's friends. Like they oh, just, I'm glad. You know, it wasn't like Barbie or some, some unrealistic notion. I just thought that was really cool. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I love an earlier draft of this book. They were much more classic, like mean girls. Um, and then kind of, I, I was, I was starting to draw them and I was like, wait, I hate, I hate this trope. I hate seeing the mean teenage girl who it's okay to have be the villain, um, Serena specifically. And so then I kind of got the idea to do all of these like interstitial text conversations between them so that we get to really see their side and be like, no, they're just teenage girls. They, they, maybe sometimes they're insensitive. Sometimes they say the wrong thing. Sometimes they're prioritizing the wrong thing, but like we all do that. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that they came across as feeling real. What do you hope young readers take away from the book? Well, I hope that they have a lot of fun reading it because I, I partially just wanted to, I'm really interested in wish fulfillment and kind of especially queer wish fulfillment. And so I, I really did want to like do this beautiful whirlwind summer romance and just show, show girls like here and like show, we'll show like queer kids in general, like, like you do get to have these beautiful moments. And uh, at the risk of like spoiling the book a little bit, it doesn't end completely happily. It, it doesn't, it doesn't have a classic romance happily ever after ending. And I also wanted to sort of show that the, the people that you meet and the experiences and encounters that you have with them, um, that those affect your life and those matter deeply. And it, you should throw yourself into them and sort of throw yourself into like love and experiences and relationships and sort of like be, be open to that. Because even if it kind of does bring about pain or doesn't, you know, you don't get married and settle down. Like that doesn't mean that it's not a sort of, it's not a way to learn a lot about yourself and grow as a person and like form these like beautiful memories. Uh -huh. That's great advice. And I wondered what advice do you have for other queer creators who may be looking to tap into those great unconscious feelings that you've brought to the fore? I would say just there's, there's so much room for our stories right now. And I would really encourage people to be brave and be personal if you can be. I think not everyone can. Like, I think some people, this is the most personal story I've done. It's sort of the first story I've done with like a lesbian as like the forefront main character, well, two lesbians. And that it, it was a little scary to kind of 
be like, I'm not doing this in a metaphorical way. I'm very specifically being like, here is me and here are things that I like and things that I find romantic. It's very vulnerable. So I understand if people can't always do that right away, but I would say, put yourself in your work. Tell the stories that you want to hear that you're not seeing from anyone else and recognize that our stories are so much bigger than just taking straight and cisgender stories and kind of swapping genders. There's so much more to be told and you can really break the story conventions and break what we think of as classic narrative and create something new because that to me is what queerness is really all about. Be very self-indulgent. Like this was absolutely the most self-indulgent book I've ever done. And it was, I think it, I think it shows, I think that people are really responding to it because they can tell that I, I love to write it. And I put in a lot of just like delicious, like wish fulfillment for myself. Um, And I think that that's so fun to read. Thank you so much for talking with me, Molly. It's really been a pleasure. I'm so glad that we could chat. This was really nice. My great thanks again to Molly Knox Ostertag and Leah Johnson for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about their work and to get additional Pride Month book recs, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer, Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. Thank you.